This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 14th, 2021, and this is episode 261. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we get to find out just how big the shitposting community in BC really is, assuming the green light is given. We'll get into it. First, thanks to everyone who supports the show every month or annually. You can join them at patreon.com slash Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. As always, we're going to start off with the greatest BC premier bracket. I was doing the math and there is like an year's worth of content at the rate we're going on this. We might have to speed it up at times, or we'll just keep dragging this out and doing one race a week and see well, where we, we, we get. something for when the politicians are mean to us and don't give us any content, like around Christmas. or Yeah, but I still only put one round lineup <laughs> in this week. Let's recap last week. We had the SoCred Bills face off. Unsurprisingly, really, Bill Bennett beats Bill Vanderzam 27 to 9. It's a 75% endorsement of the guy who won more than one election. I think that's all you really need to say about that. Vanderzam was a fucking wild ride, though, and we'll have to talk more about him someday. This week, as we slowly move towards the present, we are going to look at the 90s NDP, the battle of Mike Harcourt versus Glenn Clark. Let's start off with Harcourt, the 30th Premier of BC, who led the province from November 5th, 1991 to February 22nd, 1996. He became leader of the party in 1987. He was previously mayor of Vancouver from 1980 to 86, became an MLA, and became won a leadership contest pretty quickly after that. They went into the 1991 election, the heavy favors, because the Socreds were in chaos from what Bill Vanderzam had left them, and Rita Johnston could not stop the tailspin. The NDP took actually only 40.7% of the vote, which was down 1.9% from their previous election. But because the BC Liberals came out of not fully nowhere, but they came out to bring 33% of the vote, and the Socreds could only get 25% of the vote, the NDP was able to take 51 of 75 seats. These are two really interesting elections, 91 and 96, because in 96, the NDP gets actually its worst results since 1975, and it's like marginally better than 72. The NDP was getting in the low 40s regularly in terms of vote share through the 70s and 80s, but they still were only able to pull off majority vote victories in three races. And we'll get into the big caveats in 96 in a second. So Harcourt gets in in 91, and he really wants to live up to the social democratic promises of the NDP. One of the first things he does notably is increase the welfare rates. They'd been frozen at $500, and it was a big issue for many of the people who were frustrated with Vanderzam and Bill Bennett's 
eras of austerity. They also increased provincial spending. But then in 1993, Jean Chrétien gets into federal office and he and Paul Martin slash transfer payments to try to get the federal debt under control. And that really creates a huge deficit issue for the province. And Harcourt switches switches gears following a string of bad press and announces a crackdown on, quote, cheats, deadbeats, and varmint. Real A-plus NDP <laughs> language here, Harcourt. And welfare rates were returned to the amount when he took office, which really probably hurt every single activist who supported them. At the time, he also accused Ralph Klein of driving welfare rates from Alberta to BC, where we had a arguably more generous program, but that's not saying much when you're comparing to the legacy of Ralph Klein. Uh, I saw a lot of comparisons, a little bit of research I did for this, and we can get more into these two, whoever wins, but there was a lot of comparisons with how Harcourt and Glenn Clark both were trying to follow the Ralph Klein, Mike Harris playbook in terms of cutting welfare to get spending under control, which is quite the comparison. Wasn't the only people Harcourt pissed off in his time. He also ran into conflict with environmentalists when uh, Clayquot Sound was exempted from a province-wide mediation process for land use conflicts. This led to the infamous war in the woods with the police arresting over 800 protesters, the largest protest and mass arrest in BC until the ones happening today. They also had to stand off against indigenous protesters at the Gustafson Lake standoff which was the largest police operation in BC history. Ujal Dessange got a lot of credit from the media and the public for this, as people appreciated the hard line against the Indigenous occupation at the time. So, quite different politics in the early 90s. Harcourt ultimately resigned in 1996 following the Bingo Gate scandal. This is where a former NDP member and MLA and cabinet member used charity bingo money to fund the party. Harcourt himself was actually cleared of involvement in this, but he'd already taken the fall and felt politically like he had to go because of it. Remember when politicians went down because of scandal? Those were the days. So, Harcourt resigns in 96. That leads to a leadership race, which is won by Glenn Clark, who becomes the 31st Premier on February 26, 1996, and he leads the province until August 25, 1999. He basically came into office and quickly had to go into an election as it had been five years, which is the you know constitutional maximum amount of time you could be in office. And they scraped by the most like asterisked victory ever as the NDPs, as I mentioned, had its lowest vote share in decades and was actually beat by the BC Liberals under Gordon Campbell in terms of raw votes. I think the Campbell Liberals got two or three points more than the NDP, but because the NDP's vote was more efficient in urban ridings especially, they were able to keep a majority government. I think they still lost like 12 seats though. Yeah, they were down 12 seats and yeah, Campbell won the popular vote to 41.8 to 39.5. So things weren't great in NDP land. Glenn Clark was a bit of a rough around the edge premier. I think he came from a more union party insider element. And so he struggled to keep the coalition together. The Greens saw rising support through this time, polling between up to 5 to 
and there were various between MLAs. And Clark continued the welfare reform packages in spite of motions by party members condemning them, which is always uh, a great look for NDP premiers. Although I think Horgan's had that a couple times now. Yeah, it, I think it's probably worth emphasizing just how much this was the zeitgeist of the 90s, from the welfare reform in the U.S. to the federal budget changes and everything else. Uh, I should mention, Harcourt also reestablished a few of the things that, like the Dave Barrett NDP, and we'll get to Barrett eventually, had established. So, like the Human Rights Tribunal in BC, or the Human Rights Commission in BC was established by the NDP in the 70s. It was, it was dismantled by Bill Bennett's government, and then it was reestablished by Harcourt. And so, there's a few of those political footballs that Harcourt gets credit for if you support them. Glenn Clark infamously came down with two two major scandals. The first was the Fast Ferry scandal, which was an effort to jumpstart shipbuilding in Vancouver and really just bring ferry construction here in BC. It's We have shipbuilding capacity and we need ferries. It makes sense. Why don't we build them here? Only shot out of control. Everything went wrong that could go wrong. Just the answer to why we don't always build them here. <laughs> and then the other scandal started in 1999 with infamous TV footage of the executing a search warrant and going into Mr. Clark's home and later into the premier's office. And what it turns out was the allegation was he accepted $10,000 worth of free renovations to approve a casino from a local magnet. And Clark ended up getting charged with breach of trust and a commissioner concluded in 2001 that he had violated the province's conflict of interest laws. But the BC Supreme Court did ultimately clear him of wrongdoing, though noted that he had unwisely opened himself to the perception of unethical behavior, even if there wasn't enough solid evidence for the conviction. So Clark resigned in 99. It gave the party like a year and a half to get shit in order, and they ultimately got their worst showing in the province's history in 2001 when the party was reduced to two seats. So there's the two 90s NDP premiers, Mike Harcourt and Glenn Clark. I'm probably going to get shit from people for not talking up the good sides of them. But you know what? I think it's fair to compare them both on this metric. Yeah, there's a reason the, the Liberal Party spent 16 years talking about the 90s. There, there were some weird things too, like Glenn Clark got in trouble when he first came in because it turned out that a couple of the final budgets of the hardcore years weren't actually balanced and it's oh this is a scandal but they were actually off by like a hundred million or something so relatively trivial in the grand scheme of things but it's oh they were running deficits this whole time and it's um yes but yeah so i do think they both get unfairly maligned especially yeah hardcore ran a tough era and the scandal he went down for was dumb and wasn't even his fault. Glenn Clark's definitely were his fault. So, what a mess. Which one of these was the better premier? Go to our uh, go to our Twitter account, PoliticosPod, or politicos.ca slash bracket, and vote until next Thursday at 7pm when we record. jump into our first our main our only segment hope maybe a short week this week we'll see welcome to the gun show the circus has come to town scott 
Yeah, so uh, anthropomorphized Facebook comment section, Aaron Gunn, announced uh, officially that he will be seeking the leadership of the BC Liberal Party last Friday, I believe, shortly after we put out last week's episode. What is there to even say? I was feeling the exact same way about this. (sighs) So in his announcement and on his website, he's already put forward a number of policies. And I think those are worth talking about because it does give you a sense of how he's positioned himself and how that makes it makes him different. Like many of the BC liberals so far have vague policies, right? There's talk about a need to rebrand or reform or reinvigorate the party, but what would they specifically do? At least I'll give credit to Gunn as he has said that he would abolish the carbon tax somehow. He would privatize ICBC, which I think actually is a pretty popular BC Liberal position. Yeah, that's a pretty standard BC Liberal view. The, abolishing the carbon tax, though, isn't because they are the ones who brought it in. And like a decade, that was one of the BC Liberals' big selling points on the we're the party that actually takes the environment seriously. And, and it's also like hilarious that he's basically cribbing the NDP's at the tats rhetoric. Which notably didn't work. <laughs> notably backfired hard on them. Like, he has no environmental platform, and I'm not surprised by that. But given where the federal conservatives have struggled, like, you need to have something, especially in a province like BC. Like, maybe you could get away with that in Alberta. Jason Kenney did. But you got to have something in BC, especially if you want to win seats in the lower mainland. But maybe he's yeah. just aiming for leadership. Well, that's the thing. Like reading through this is reading through what he has on his website. It's pretty clear that this is laser focused on winning over kind of the the most committed and partisan right winger section of the BC Liberal Party because I, there is nothing in here that even hints at expanding the base. Yeah, and it even moves the BC Liberals away from where they are because he wants to do things like eliminate the vaccine card, which the party supports. He so wants this is a, yeah, it, that's a good way to I don't know get like a dozen seats in the interior, and that's about it. It's to build that base in Peace River from you know the seventies to the eighty-five percent of the vote. So the rest of the platform is standard kind of culture war stuff, defend our heritage and eliminate critical race theory. I don't know if he actually says that specifically, but it's along those kind of I lines. He, I don't think that's actually mentioned in there, but it's... He does talk about like reforming the curriculum to make sure it talks about Canadian values and history more positively and that kind of thing. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's... Uh, yeah, I mentioned something along the lines of removing the ideology from it is I think how we phrase it. But yeah, the, I mean, Gunn is very much kind of culture warrior first person and persona. And yeah, that's reflected pretty strongly in here. Like, if I look through here, I can probably pick out like one or two things that aren't bad and they're actually good. Like, I mean, the PPC technically still runs on ending supply management, so we can play this game and you'd find something you like in every yeah, party, like, of that, course. That's, yeah, they're okay on that front. Like, he does have one section about basically the province stepping in on um, housing and zoning, which I I guess goes to what we were talking about a couple weeks back, 
with kind of the emerging consensus in the provincial political space on the need to do that. And I guess a point for him there, but there isn't a huge amount else that I find particularly compelling or that I imagine anyone in kind of the net 10% the liberals need to win to contest power in four years, I guess three years time now. There's really no hint of that. His his energy and environment platform is basically three points of getting rid of the carbon tax, expanding LNG and pipelines. And if that's your views on those things, you're already voting for the Liberal Party on that. Maybe not on the carbon tax thing, but even so, that's there's no real people that's going to convert there. It's like maybe you pick up 2% that had fallen off to the conservatives or had stayed home. But yeah, there's no path to majority government without a climate plan anymore. So I'm not even sure there's a path to minority government with what's in here. Is the whole thing a joke, a grift? Is this just a pure vanity project for him? Or is he actually serious about wanting to lead the party and in his dreams, the province? I It's a profile raiser. I don't have enough insight into the mind of Aaron Gunn to say whether or not that's all it is. But I can say that I don't think the theory of politics that is woven through his announcement, what he has on his website or anything, is actually the sort of thing that leads to a, a viable political party. So the bigger question is, before we even decide if he could win this thing, will he even get to compete the first debate he has to pass is the party's Greenlight Committee. And I think the way to frame this uh, question is around the criticisms that the NDP actually issued against him, both in a statement and on social media, to which he was trying to respond to in the Vancouver Sun by saying, no, I'm not a racist transphobe. Some of my best friends are brown. He, I don't know if he has any trans friends. So the NDP accused of him making racist and transphobic statements in the past. They pointed to links on his social media that say he has said systemic racism doesn't exist. He has denied there's a gender pay gap. Notably, the BC Liberals, Stephanie Cadeau has repeatedly introduced a bill to address the gender pay gap as well, I should highlight. Uh, Gunn has also supported conservative MPs expelled from caucus for supporting conversion therapy, according to the NDP. And so it's these kind of statements that go, what does this kind of person bring the BC Liberals into disrepute should he be permitted to run? We don't need to make our own decision on this. This is ultimately up to the BC Liberal insiders. Notably, Michael Lee came out on Twitter saying Aaron Gunn has the right to express his views, but the BC Liberal Party has a responsibility to not give a platform to intolerant views like those he shared. I urge candidates to affirm inclusive values and join me in calling for his candidacy to be rejected. Now, obviously, a candidate for the leadership race has an interest in not having more competition. On the other side of the aisle, or on the other side of the debate, Ellis Ross put out a statement saying he supports Aaron Gunn being allowed to enter the race since he, you know, welcomes a wide variety of candidates who might be able to bring change. Yeah, that's definitely a view I think you'll hear from 
some members of the party that really it's up for the party membership to make that determination. I'm somewhat less sold on it. I, I, I expect that his general presence in the debates are going to generally be detrimental to the overall image of the BC Liberal Party. And for that reason, I think it's in the Liberals' best interest if he doesn't end up getting formally nominated. On the other hand, it's hard to say how much of a backlash that's going to go. Because when candidates do sometimes get disqualified on or by greenlight committees, it can lead to some pretty fratricious internal party debates as well. So it's always just, a tough line to just, watch. Just ask the NPA in Vancouver. Yeah, it's a tough line for parties to watch on that. Yeah, Gunn also tweeted out a comment in reply to Michael Lee's statement saying, when you talk to me face to face, you express the exact opposite i guess you say one thing to some people and you know others to others calling him out as a two-faced politician the risk of turning him down or rejecting his candidacy is what else does he do with the energy and momentum he has i the way bc politics is structured i don't know if he would be able to bring about enough momentum to have a new party be taken seriously? Could he reinvigorate the BC Conservatives for... That would probably be the easiest thing for him to do if there was a push for that. Do they have a leader, though? I think Tim Boland... Do they? Well, do they ever? I, I honestly cannot recall. I know they've had some ups and downs in the last couple of years. Mostly downs. Part. The Ellis-Ross positioning is interesting. I think it highlights that Ross... See, doesn't necessarily fully agree with every position of guns, but I think there has been a view that in any of these ranked ballot kind of leadership races, you need to identify your allies or whose supporters are likely to be your second choicers who can help you get past the finish line. And I think Ross knows that he is going after a similar-ish vote, maybe not as fully like 4chan Facebook shit poster, but a more conservative side of the party versus Lee is probably trying to go for the more urban moderate. Yeah, although interestingly, I think Lee might be a federal Tory. So yeah, I'm not particularly looking forward to Gunn's presence in this contest should he be greenlit. We've seen how a party that is lost at sea and doesn't know what it stands for and lacks excitement and interest from the general public can be taken over by a know, flashy culture warrior who's just angry at the world but doesn't have real substantive solutions and the world is worse for it. So anyway, maybe he will get shot down and this will just be a brief blip in his resume of do you work for the canadian taxpayers federation at one point and then founded like canada proud and that's basically what he's done in his 31 years of life well switching gears uh to quick takes the Ferry Creek legal battle continues as earlier this week an appeals court ruled that the injunction Teal Jones can apply 
applied for can proceed and is going to be extended. Uh, so we talked about this one to two weeks ago with Micah back after the lower court had refused to grant the injunction. I think at the time we had spr- uh, most of us, well, I can't recall your positions, Apple, but I think the general consensus coming out of that was it was going to be interesting to watch where it goes and there's a decent chance the higher courts would come out differently on this and so they have. So this is an interim injunction from the BC Court of Appeal. They're still, I think, planning to hear the full arguments about whether or not the Supreme Court got it wrong. But the appellate court judge looked at what has happened in the like week that the injunction was missing and went, you know, this can't, there's too much serious happening. We'll deal with the arguments, but in the interim, the stay needs to be put in and we'll you know, the status quo in the interim. And basically what the judge came down on is really just focusing on the issue that the protesters raised, which was the RCMP's uh, violent actions and unjustifiable actions, was less a matter for the court to decide and more or unless it's a different case, right? It's the protesters versus the police in those cases. In this case, Anarchy was going to reign, and the court shouldn't allow that. It was basically where the appeal court came down in the interim. Yeah, in this case, it was Teal Jones applying for the uh, injunction and requesting its extension. And it's not really Teal Jones's problem, and it isn't really their fault if the RC if the enforcement tactics are not uh, satisfactory to the court, and they shouldn't bear the cost of that. Which seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, the one thing I'll be watching, it'll be interesting to see how it goes in the actual hearing and coming out of the final decision is because what the lower court did say is allowing this injunction to continue would be to allow police, like, beyond the pale police violence. Like, we're not talking just run-of-the-mill, but just, like, uncontrolled infringements of charter rights would continue. And on a balance of protecting the public good, because that's what the courts exist to do, right now they've rebalanced towards the logging company, but will they, but doing so, re-empowers the police to go back to what they were doing. And I get that the idea situation is for the protesters to be able to take the police themselves to court but when the cops are covering up their badges and getting away with shit in the middle of nowhere it's a really tough situation i did think the lower court ruling was quite astounding for it willingness to say that but i don't necessarily think it was wrong for that it'll be interesting this is an interesting case and i use that word a lot when i don't have much else to say about it. So let's move on to talk about the BC Liberals once again. Kelowna Lake Country MLA Norm Letnick is in the news as the Kelowna Capital News reports that he is mulling a mayoral bid in the city of Kelowna, which would be interesting as it would open up one of the safest liberal seats in the province for a by-election, which 
could be filled by one of the many leadership contenders who currently doesn't have a seat should they win or choose to get back into politics as many of them implored Kevin Falcon to do. Yeah, I, th I think this is mostly interesting for kind of the implications for leaders needing to find a seat this February. I, I don't have a good sense of kind of the local Kelowna political scene with respect to their mayoral race, but provincially it, it'll save, I think, the liberals some challenges if the, if Letnick does go ahead with this. Yeah, Letnick was previously a councillor in Kelowna from 2005 to 2008. The seat the constituency itself is really interesting. Historically, it's been a number of different ridings over the years, South Okanagan South, Okanagan East, and its modern Kelowna Lake country. Letnick has held it since 2009. Before that, the BC Liberals held it since 1991 with a really big asterisk that the candidate Judy Tiab G, apologies if I got that wrong, became an independent briefly and then was with the Progressive Democratic Alliance. Tiab G had an affair with former BC Liberal leader Gordon Wilson, and then they both got kicked out of the BC Liberals and they formed the new party. So that's a weird bit of BC poly history. Prior to 91, the province was held by the social credit since 1951. It was represented by both Bill Bennett's, WAC Bennett and Bill Bennett Jr., uh, as well as a couple other MLAs in there. Wacky Bennett was actually elected in the seat in 41 as a conservative and then in, served in the coalition government. The seat only was held by the provincial liberals from 33 to 41, and before that, it was conservative since 1916. So, it is a very conservative seat, is what I'm just trying to say. Letnick took it with 55% of the vote in, two, in 2020, which was down from the almost 60% he got in 2017. It would be wild for the Liberals to not lose this. It would be wild for the Liberals to lose this seat. It's about as safe as they can get, as I said. But yeah, maybe he'll run for mayor in Kelowna. It might be a more rewarding job than backbench. Actually, I think he's their education critic right now. He's pretty respected within caucus as far as I can tell. But maybe he'd make a good mayor for Kelowna. Well, from the provincial liberals to the federal liberals, the federal government is uh, getting some raised eyebrows as the Canada Revenue Agency has sent notice to over 4,000 fishermen or fishers, mostly people in Nova Scotia, for overpayment of relief assistance and is asking for roughly $25.8 million back from these individuals. In Nova Scotia alone, the 2,382 people to get these notices are being asked to repay $13.8 million. This was the Fish Harvester Benefit and Grant Program that the CRA created in 2020 as a COVID-19 relief. And according to Department of Fisheries and Oceans, these applicants filed incorrect tax information with respect to the nature of their income basically saying they were self-employed when they should have been basically mixing up the employment status with how they should have declared things. And so, they were given assistance that they were not owed according to the program. It's a mess. 
And that's a lot of money that into these fishermen or these fisher people may have to pay back. Like, this is a frustrating story, right? Because we saw this with CERB to a significantly lesser extent. Many of these programs were thrown together quite quickly because of the nature of how quickly we needed to get relief programs and each industry had its own unique issues. And now we're kind and people did their best, as far as I can tell, to claim these programs. They weren't always easy. They wasn't always clear whether you qualified. And now we're in this situation where people have to decide. People apparently owe tens of thousands of dollars each back to the government, which hurts. Yeah, it was go going through the stories, a little unclear on some of this stuff. Like, the first part, it really did seem like a case of, oh, people were applying for stuff they weren't eligible for. To makes total sense. The government wants the money back for payments to ineligible recipients. Further down, it gets a little more complicated uh, with it and seems like the information on how to qualify was not entirely clear. It just seems like a mess. Fishers have until Friday to file an appeal, which has already been extended three times. It's, yeah, not a good look. I don't, I know they have apologized to several, or they have apologized and waived some of the CERB overpayments. So the government cut checks for hundreds of millions, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in relief. I would almost say it wouldn't be the worst thing if they just wrote off this $25 million for the most part. Because it's not like fishers are known for being quite wealthy in the grand scheme of things. And given the liberals have quite a base in Atlantic Canada, you'd think they'd try to address this. Yeah, although there is also the political danger on the other side of being seen to be um, a little fast and loose with the, the money and not making sure it's going to the right places. And fr from the report on this, I honestly cannot tell how much of that is the case here or not, but there's definitely political risk on both sides of this for them and... It's you know not unreasonable for the government to want to make sure that the money does go out where it's supposed to go and not where it's not supposed to go. Well, speaking of monies going where they should or shouldn't go, reporting this week from CBC suggests that the Green Party hasn't quite figured out the whole when Anime Paul is actually going to be leaving. And at the root of this is the negotiations between her and the party regarding handing off of certain things and who has to bear the legal costs between the party and Paul for all of the back and forth on the dispute they've had for the past several months. It's amazing she can't even quit without it being a scandal. <sighs> she can't even leave. Like, and they, I, they, I get her position. They, they I get the party. Masters of doing politics differently. Like, I get Not it. Well, but differently. Actually, I don't fully understand why she has. I guess she's remaining in party in the position because it gives her some power in these negotiations. But it, that sh shouldn't matter. 
<laughs> like you should be able to walk away and continue your lawsuit and your fight. Like you don't keep showing up to work while you're negotiating severance. Ne you don't necessarily. I've never had to deal with that, so I guess I can't really speak to it. But it's just a mess. I don't know who's at fault here. It doesn't help that the party was suing her. God. Yeah, anyway, their bad news just keeps continuing. The Conservative Party also has some bad news this week, although maybe it's some good news. They're in the news. The I think we mentioned this. The member of the National Council, Bert Chen, who had started a change.org petition to oust Aaron O'Toole, he has now himself been ousted as he has been suspended from the party for 60 days pending a review of his behavior and following complaints received about his conduct. He's called this an attempt to silence him on his own Facebook page, and he will continue to fight to get Aaron O'Toole out. Yeah, this is unexpected. It clearly to me tells me that the uh, fight is going to get more intense, and I think all everyone's going to be using the available tools in their toolbots here. And yeah, it doesn't seem entirely out of the question for me or out of the realm possibility that, yeah, this was basically the party apparatus being used to try and keep things as stable as possible with respect to the leadership. The other people who are unhappy with Aaron O'Toole and are calling on him to resign are members of the Chinese Canadian Conservative Association who feel that Aaron O'Toole's approach to China alienated Chinese Canadian voters and that the party should oust him because of that and take a more dovish approach to China. This was a story in the Vancouver Sun that just came out today, I thought, or yesterday. What, did you, what was your read on? I have to say I disagree fairly strongly with the views. Uh, expressed in there. So this is primarily coming out of uh, Joe Lee, a regional councillor for Markham, Ontario, and who had run in the past with the Federal Conservative Party. His There's a couple, I think, choice quotes in there about how the Michaels were detained after Canada started the war and that China's within its rights to violate Taiwanese airspace that not only do I take issue with, but I think pretty much the rank and file of the Conservative Party and most Canadians would also take issue with. As for the actual content of the election campaign and the position Aaron O'Toole took, it, it was pretty clear in the Conservative Party platform, the communications, O'Toole's speeches on the matter, that his concerns were with the government of China and not China in general. So yeah, it, it's not a view I find compelling, nor one that I think the Conservative Party should take very seriously. So what's fascinating to me about this political approach is I don't know what they would hope to gain. If they oust Aaron O'Toole, I don't see a path where a more pro-China candidate wins. Yeah, I'm, I'm also having trouble seeing that, at least in the domestic Canadian political context. Like, I 
Like perhaps they can like, I, I could, make yeah. the case that the conservatives need a rethink on how effective their positioning on China has been and maybe softening parts of it or doing something like that. Yeah. But like a leadership contest is likely to swing further right now. And I, based on the, you know, attitude of conservative members, I would suspect it would be more, more anti-China than less in yeah, a leadership. Like the, the Chinese government, it's, I think generally taking the position and try to it use this influence where possible to generally make things as unpleasant as possible for people who are particularly critical of it. And like in that context, I could see that where a victory for them would be where the perception that emerges in Canada is that it is politically disadvantageous to take on that position. And it's there's no real sign that is what is motivating these comments, but in terms of broader end result, I, I could definitely see how that kind of ties in into desirable political outcomes for certain parties in this. But Are you saying the Chinese government is envious of the Israeli government's position in Canadian political discourse? Isn't quite what I was getting at. What country around the world wouldn't want to be so immune from criticism? <laughs> But that's touching on a different hot potato. I thought I just thought these were two interesting stories. Like they're not that big. One is just funny that this member of the National Council was ousted, and the other was just interesting to see the alignments forming within the Conservative coalition and where the criticisms are coming from. I don't know that this one group represents a majority of Chinese Canadian conservatives. Yeah, and I, I did see claims on social media that I've not been able to verify one way or the other. That this is not a group that has a formal affiliation with the Conservative Party, so there, there's some questions there as well. But yeah, my my general sense, both from the general Canadian opinion polling, which I think has favorable views of China sitting or, or the Chinese government sitting around the below 20% mark, kind of 10 to 15%. And also just knowing conservatives and understanding the general feelings there is that this doesn't seem like this sort of criticism that is going to be motivating for party members or even outside political actors trying to exert influence on the conservative party it doesn't seem like it's the sort of thing that will motivate them to try and push harder for a change in leadership with the CPC. And finally, Angus Reid has a poll out. It's their quarterly premier approval rating roundup. And the big interesting headline is everyone has gotten less popular since June, pretty much, except Doug Ford, who is like up a point which is negligible, but good for you. <laughs> Premiers Andrew Fury in Newfoundland, John Horgan here in BC, and Francois Legault in Quebec are topping the pack with Nova Scotia's Tim Houston also doing well. They're all between the four of them sitting at 56 or 55%. Fury has dropped 6% since June, Horgan 7 and Legault a solid 10-point drop. All of them seem to be suffering from a fourth wave or just the summer didn't go. The last three, four months hasn't gone as well as any would have hoped. Uh, in the BC one, they note in particular that there was a heat wave that killed several hundred people and 
the town of Lytton burned down in the time that Horgan has only dropped seven points. Not just burned down, but uh, there was the heat wave, and then the yeah, those those deaths just are the thing that happened. Statements out of Horgan. No wonder he's been as stable as he is. The next tier of premiers is Scott Moe has forty three percent approval. He's down eighteen points. He's actually at a record low for him. The Premier of Saskatchewan has been sitting in the 50s or 60s percent range for most of his tenure. Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick is down 17 points to 38 percent. Like I said, Doug Ford is up one, but that's only to 36 percent. He's doing marginally better than Manitoba's interim Premier, Kelvin Gertzen, who I I had to look up his first name. Same with Houston in Nova Scotia. There's a few new names on here. And it happens. And finally, Jason Kenny is at the bottom of the pack, sitting with 22% approval, uh, something like 70 plus percent disapproval. He's at a net negative 50 something. He's down nine points. And I believe he's sitting at the unpopularity levels of Allison Redford and previous premiers when they got chased out of town. So he's just scraping the bottom of the barrel right now. I, I want to meet the 22% of Albertans who think that guy's doing a good job. Yeah, I'm on it. I'm having trouble pitching on them. I, I, I can see Albertans being angry at Jason Kenny for not doing enough on COVID. I can also picture the Albertans who were angry at Kenny for doing too much on COVID. I am having a real hard time figuring out who the 22% are who think he he nailed it just right. Maybe they go, he's faced, He's had a tough time, he's faced a tough ride, but he's still the guy who got in fights with nurses, which is something I like to see. He's the guy who bungled a curriculum reform and filled it with like massively ideological stuff that I want to see in schools, like lists of medieval characters. Just weird stuff. What a... I love that he launched an inquiry into environmental charities that has had its deadline extended five times and we still don't know what they've discovered he's doing a good job maybe these are just people who really care about equalization reference it's also well that might even fail in the next week the polling on it is nowhere near as strong as i would have expected but that one will probably at least pass there are two percent of albertans who are undecided that's the lowest in the entire country uh Premier Gertz in Manitoba has the most undecided. It's probably because he's a brand new interim premier and no one's going to bother to learn his name. Here in BC, 6% of British Columbians are undecided on John Horgan. Yeah, the fourth wave has not been kind to premiers. The rally to the flag, rally to the strong leader, initial pandemic bumps in support that most of them saw. I don't think Jason Kenney did, but most of the rest of them saw seems to have waned and we're back to pre-COVID levels for many of them. And I think it'll be interesting to see, especially as Doug Ford has an election to go into next year, what he does with his approval rating. Yeah, with the uh, Ontario election coming up, it's going to be interesting to watch there, particularly how things shake out. The I think the Liberals don't even have official party status at the moment in the Ontario legislature, but they're also... I think have a reasonable chance of being poised to be the party that the not Ford vote coalesces around. So it, it it's going to be really interesting to see how that election shakes out. 
Andrea Horwath's leader since 2009, still trying to convince Ontarians to vote NDP. The, the Ontario NDP really is a party that is just stuck in neutral. Oh, but who and, knows, maybe, maybe Stephen Del Dutra just does not connect with Ontarians and the NDP gets a bunch of votes by default. And I think Jason Kenney is facing a leadership review. He has promised, I believe, in March or May in, the er in early 2022, but there is a big push to try to move that up because they want him gone. And by they and his own party, as well as most Albertans, as this poll reports. But this is good news for John Horgan, even though he's down, who would hate to be among the most popular premiers in the country, facing a opposition that does not have a permanent leader and has yet to produce someone that seems to be capturing the excitement of the province. So, or the excitement of the party at this moment. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. Thank you.